speak, you feel comfortable in a context like this, speaking out loud. If I were to ask you, where do you think most people find their fulfillment? Where do you find your joy? Think for yourself now. Where do you find satisfaction? Where do you find the most fulfillment in your life? If I were to ask those questions, what do you think most people would say? Where do you find your joy? Where do you find happiness? Where do you find fulfillment? What do you think some people would say? Family? God? Materialism, all right? What else? Sleep. Sleep. (laughs) That's a new dad. (laughs) Speaking. Being a dad, some would say. I've never had anything like that. Being a dad, I find an amazing sense of fulfillment in that. Being a grandparent, some would say. What are some other things you think people would say? Work. You find fulfillment in work. What else? Giving to others. others. Excellent. What did somebody say over here? What is it? Behind the TV. That's where people find fulfillment or satisfaction. James is going to address some of that. I have loved this book. I'm not sure if you did or not or do or not. I hope you do. I think James addresses an enormous amount of issues. One of the reasons I was delighted when I felt God leading us in this direction as we began to unpack the book of James is that he really talks about an enormous amount of issues. He talks about the way we act. He talks about the way we talk and how powerful our words can be if we use them well. Always fascinated when I stand at a pulpit and I talk about where we are as a nation and some of our struggles and some of our problems and What we need to do and the fact that the Republicans won't save us and the Democrats won't save us. Only God himself will save us. We all cheer and yell because we believe that. But when we talk about gossip or how we use our tongues or how we can encourage or tear someone down by our words, very little response. Because now we're touching right where we live. How we talk, how we use the language that God has given us. James talks about where we get wisdom, where we get direction, who we seek it from, who we get it from. Talks about how to talk, how to live, how to walk, how to love. James chapter 4 is where we are this morning. I want you to take your Bibles out. We're going to spend a couple of weeks just in the first 10 verses of James chapter 4. As again, we begin to explore what I think is an incredibly powerful section of Scripture. A couple of weeks, he's going to address the issue of how we pray. James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. That You spend it on what you get or when you get with your own pleasure. You adulterous people. Don't you know the friendship with the world means enmity with God or against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit that he caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That's why the Spirit said God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. 
Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Incredibly encouraging passage of Scripture, isn't it? James is going to contrast similar to what we found in the end of chapter 3 about where we get life and energy. At the end of chapter 3, Ted did a great job a couple of weeks ago talking about where we get wisdom. Where do we get our direction? What, what do we use to make decisions? Our own intuition, our own ingenuity, our own mind, or God's? We talked about the parallel between the two and what one looks like and how we then apply that to how we raise our kids, how we live out our marriage. He's going to talk in this particular section of Scripture in a few moments about where we get life, where we get fulfillment. Whether we find it in God or whether we find it in the things around me. Things that you mentioned a moment ago. There's a lot of people that find their fulfillment in their job, in their family. They find it in their possessions, in their talent, their accomplishments, their hobbies, where they live or how others view them. That's where they find their fulfillment and they look for it in all of those things to somehow satisfy this deep longing in their soul. Solomon in the Old Testament is a probably classic example of someone who thought they could get life from the things around them. He said this, I went after it all. I enlarged my house, I stockpiled gold, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse. The results of that, It's like the chasing after the wind. I was never somehow fulfilled. I tried it all. I went after it all. There wasn't one thing that you could mention on this planet that he didn't go after, hoping that somehow all of those things would somehow satisfy this deep longing in his soul. And he said, at the end of it all, I felt like it was the chasing after the wind. That I could never harness it. I could never find satisfaction. It was never enough. Because I was looking for life in all the wrong places. In all the wrong things. Solomon said it thousands of years ago. It could have been written yesterday. Look at what James says in verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from those desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you go after it. You kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God or come to him. Solomon described it thousands of years ago. James described it 2,000 years ago. It could have been written yesterday. We live in a culture that is written out or trying to write God out of every aspect of life. A culture that has ruled God out of the very place that they could go to find the ultimate fulfillment of life. They pushed him back as far as they can. They pushed him away as far as they can. Now I'm not talking about those who never attend church. There are many who do attend church, who like to be religious, who say it's okay to be religious. It's okay to go to church. But to totally commit oneself to God and draw my fulfillment and my satisfaction from Him and Him alone, not many do. When we look at the history of our own nation, we go back and we teach our children about the great revolutionary war of the 18th century and how life changed so dramatically when we won our independence. That revolution was nothing compared to the revolution that took place in America in the decade of the 60s, which was a cultural revolution. And there's a lot of confusion because those of us who were born before that era had a worldview 
that is now on a collision course with that worldview that was established in the post-cultural revolution of the 60s. We're living in a nation that's more divided than it's ever been in its past, and it's an ideological, a philosophical, cultural divide. In the middle of the 20th century, the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber wrote a fascinating book with the title, The Eclipse of God. And that caught my attention because an eclipse is not something that destroys a reality. It only hides it, conceals it, covers it over, puts a shadow on it. And that's where we are in our culture today. God has not been destroyed. God still exists. But we have cast a shadow over his face. And my passion is to help people get beyond that shadow, to move the shadow aside so that we can see the transcendent majesty of the glory of the reality that's there. And one of the greatest places to see that is in the church, the Bride of Christ. I don't know if you've seen the Truth Project yet. That's a piece from it. That's R.C. Sproul. It is incredible. A lot of our folks, I think Ted said over 350 of our folks have seen it. We're watching it in our small group. You, every time we see the sign-up sheet, it gets signed up pretty fast. But if you have not seen it, you need to. It is absolutely captivating in the context of some of the issues we face in our culture today. We live in a culture that really does and seems to be trying to do everything it can to somehow push God out, the one thing that can bring ultimate fulfillment, and we find ourselves in a culture that looks for it in every other way. I grew up in the 60s, and it's fascinating now being this old to now look back over those 50 years ago, what that was like in that context, and what it's like today when I see the culture do so much of what it did in the 60s when it began to push Christ out, when it began to push God out. And to all of a sudden, what I find fascinating about that, to all of a sudden they realize no matter how many things I search for, no matter how many things I look for, God was the only answer, and the Jesus movement of the 1960s and early 70s was huge as people began to realize Jesus Christ really is the answer to this thirsting in my soul. When you and I come to faith in Christ, we come to more than a Savior. We come to a Savior, but we come to more than that. When we come to faith in Christ, we came because we wanted forgiveness for our sins and eternal life. And we got all of that. But when we came to faith in Christ, Jesus wants more than just offering us forgiveness and eternal life. He wants to be more than our Savior, more than our King. He came into this relationship with us to have a relationship with us so that He would be the groom and we would be the bride. Believers are called throughout Scripture, children of God, sons and daughters of God, priests, the holy people. But when Jesus comes back, he is coming back for the church, which he refers to as the bride of Christ. I get frustrated so often when I read and hear other authors criticizing the church. I I, I know it's definitely not perfect, but it's his bride. It's what he's coming back to redeem. My devotion this week said this, the temple of God, the body of Christ, The fellowship of the saints, the beloved bride. All these are biblical descriptions of this unique entity known as the church. The world thinks of it simply as an institution, and unfortunately it began to resemble that far too often. But it's more than an institution. It's more than an organization. It's more than a movement. It is the kingdom of God on earth, a spiritual companion of Jesus, the bride of Christ. It's easy to forget. We get into habits, we play roles, fulfill responsibilities, we go through the motions. 
But the gathering of believers, whether on Sunday morning or at any other time, is the visible expression of an invisible reality. This combining of the bride and the groom in the body of Christ. Despite all of his flaws, and there are many, the church is where Jesus works in this world today. It's his body. It's not a metaphor, it's, rel- it's literal. The fruit of the Spirit is expressed primarily in the body. The gifts of the Spirit are expressed primarily through and for the body. When Jesus ascended, he didn't leave this world. His presence is still visible and very real. It can only be experienced in its fullness when believers unite in worship and they fully understand who they are in him. Whether we can comprehend it or not, the Savior that walked the dusty roads of Israel 2,000 years ago still walks in this world today through us. The church is not an obligation. It is a holy presence. It may look and act unholy sometimes, but regardless of its shortcomings, the Spirit of Jesus inhabits His people. And for that alone, the church requires utmost respect, sincere devotion, and every ounce of passion we can give it. It isn't just a group of people we know who gather on Sunday morning. It is a group of people who Jesus lives in. We are His bride, and He loves us. And what he wants is an exclusive relationship with us where we find fulfillment in him and him alone. There are a lot of people that come to that relationship with God like the spiritual equivalent of marrying for the money. No one wants that kind of relationship in a marriage and neither does God. He doesn't want us to come to him for what he gives, although he gives it all. He wants us to come to him for a wonderfully deep, meaningful relationship where we find our fulfillment in Him, not for what we get from Him. Some people come to God for fire insurance. Two options at the end of life, heaven or hell. I don't want to go to hell. How do I get to heaven? Through Christ. That's where I'm going. That's what I'll do. They don't ask any more of me than that. I made a decision. I raised my hand. I signed a card. I said a prayer. That's all I want to do. I just want to make sure that when I die, I go to heaven. What do I need to do to do that? And we lead them to faith in Christ. And that's all they want. That's, all they, that's where they stay. And God says, I want so much more than that. Some see God as one of the many things they have in life to find happiness and fulfillment. God wants so much more. He wants an exclusive relationship with us. Anything else than that will keep you always looking around for the next best thing. There's a lot of people who get excited about God at first, but when he doesn't answer a prayer in some way they wish he did, or he does something they don't understand, the relationship cools. I see it all the time in a church. I see it at times with churches. We get excited about what it's doing, a particular ministry, a particular individual, or a particular vision, but when the church doesn't do something that I want, or doesn't does something I don't understand, or goes in a direction I'm not real sure of, somehow that passion that I felt at one time when I was a part of it, isn't there anymore, and I go and look for the thing that I think will finally now then satisfy this next thing that I'm looking for. God wants an exclusive relationship with us like we do in a marriage. God wants a relationship with us like you want in your marriage where you're not looking around for the next best thing or the next thing down the road or something that may satisfy you more than where you're at right now. God wants a relationship with us like we want in our marriage where we are in exclusive relationship with Him and we know that our fulfillment and our happiness and our joy come from Him, not from things around me. All the things around me then become amazing blessings. That's why He says what He does in verses 4 and 5. He says, You adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world means 
enmity against God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he caused to dwell in us? God says in verse 5, I'm a jealous God. And when I came into this relationship with you, I had assumed that you understood what that means. And that you're going to find what you're looking for in me. Because you won't find it in all those other things. No matter how hard Solomon tried, he couldn't. But I guarantee you it will be in me. And what I want is for you to believe that. And then begin to walk in that context and begin to draw your strength and energy from me. No one wants to be in a marriage relationship with someone who is always looking around. There's no depth in that relationship, just existence until the next best thing comes along. When I came into my marriage relationship with Connie and she with me, we absolutely expected total fidelity. She expected that with me. She expected that from me, with her and her alone. No one else. Why would anybody ever want to go into a relationship in a marriage relationship that wouldn't be like that? No one would want to go into a marriage relationship to try it out, to experiment, to see if it works. Being there for a while and until the next best thing comes along, I, 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 you're cute, honey. I, I like you a lot. I, I haven't found anybody else lately that's prettier than you or nicer than you, so let's get married for a couple years, and then when she comes along, I'll deal with that then. Who on earth would ever go into a relationship like that? Who would ever want a marriage like that? Sometimes we do that with God. God, I love you. I'm, uh, remember your, your day of salvation when you came to faith in Christ? You were on fire for God. You loved him down to your toes. Couldn't get enough of him. You wanted to read the word. You came to, to uh, Bible study, church, small group, whatever that may have been. You were excited about your relationship with God. Somebody told you that you, couldn't only find, you could only find fulfillment in him and, and you understood what you were in that relationship and, and you came to him and you were uh, in love with him and you connected with him and you invited him into your life and you began this relationship with God remember what that was like how excited you were how in love with him you were there's a lot of comparisons and he uses it all the time through the New Testament between us and a marriage relationship that's what every marriage relationship is supposed to be all about I'm head over heels in love. I, I want to spend some time, get to know this individual. I want to know what makes them tick. I want to know how they understand life. I want to know what their dreams are, their aspirations, their desires. What's important to them is important to me. And so you begin this partnership, and it continues to grow and mature until after 38 years in our context. I, again, I talked to my mom yesterday, and she said, 60 years, and it, we're still more and more in love. That's what you want. That's what everybody wants. I get it. I understand not everybody in this room has had that. That's what you want. That's what you desire. That's what God desires with us. That kind of relationship where I find satisfaction and joy and fulfillment in Him. And I'm not looking around to try to find it in other things. I find it in Him. He gives me a lot of other things that brings happiness into my life and that I enjoy doing. But I'm not looking to those things to satisfy this huge chasm in my soul that can only be filled with God. God says, anything else beyond this relationship with me, or where you're trying to find it in all these other things, is like being in an adulterous relationship, where you're always looking around for the next best thing. 
James indicates that the other love in this relationship that God doesn't want us to have is, is, is the world. Now, there are three biblical definitions or concepts of the world. One is obviously the globe, the physical earth. The other is people, for God so loved what? The world, the people, all of humanity, that he sent his one and only son. And then there's the world system, that life comes from things, that life comes from pleasure, that life comes from knowledge, not from God. You and I all have different concepts when we think of friendship with the world or what it means when we talk about worldly. When I, when I grew up, worldly was defined within the context of activities. When I grew up in the 50s and the 60s, worldly meant you didn't go to dances, didn't go to movies, and didn't play cards. That's what worldly meant. And everybody said you, they would go to this verse and say you can't have friendship with the world, so you don't do those things. Connie grew up in that same kind of context. And she said one of the things that she wasn't allowed to do was to go bowling or to go to dances or go to movies or go to skating rinks because they were worldly. Couldn't wear jewelry. First Peter 3.3 3 was taken totally out of context when Peter was talking about that marriage relationship and said where your beauty shouldn't come from outward adornment, us wearing fine gold or fine clothes. It should come from an inner self, an unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And some would take that verse out of context and mean, well, then that means worldly, so I couldn't wear any of my rings, couldn't wear jewelry. A couple of weeks ago, Connie and I had the opportunity just to take a couple of days. She's finally better, and I praise God for that. And took a couple of days away. We hadn't been away for the last six months and went to Amish country over in Ohio, Walnut Creek. Began to read some of their background, some of the things to them, and they would identify with this section of Scripture because they would have writings and articles that said, worldly to, to them meant we don't have the telephone, we don't have electricity, we don't have television, we don't have the Internet. Those things are worldly, they would say, and so they don't use them. Is that what God's talking about? that what he means here? I ask our staff this very question. What do you think he means in this context when he says friend of the world or a friend of God? What does that mean when it says worldly? What does it mean when he says you have these activities that pull you away from God? And these were some of their answers. Anything that pulls you away from a relationship with God, an intimate relationship with God, would be considered worldly. Walking away from the presence of God. Finding counterfeit satisfaction in other things. Self-indulgence. Where it's all about what I can get out of life. It's how you think. What influences your thinking, your behavior. The, the system that runs you on the inside as a computer does. Having its own system as to what monitors and what runs it. When you think that that system as the world offers you its satisfaction and wealth and knowledge and all those things... That's worldly, and your system is now operating on that mode as opposed to what God wants for you. Believing the media over believing the Word of God, choosing to ignore moral boundaries, going against the moral issues of right and wrong. What does it mean to be a friend of God? Where God's best interests are more important than mine. When I love Him for who He is, not for what He brings. Well, how can you tell? That you're wrestling between two loves. This love for God and this compassion for God and this friendship with God and this friendship with the world. Some of the easiest ways are to ask yourself a really honest question. Where do I get my fulfillment? Where do I spend my money? How do I spend my time? What is my relationship with God like? What does it look like? If everyone cheats at work, how different am I? If everyone gets high on the weekend, what do I do? 
when they talk at school about how the world came into being, what do you believe? How do you feel when you sin? Does it bother you? Or is it, oh, well, everybody's doing it? Do you realize within the context of sin that you really break the heart of God? Do you realize that when you violate that relationship that God so has for us in this marriage partnership, that when I look around and try to find satisfaction in other things instead of my relationship with God, not meaning I have to shun all those things or get rid of them all at all. I've got a lot of hobbies. I have a lot of other things that I enjoy doing in life. What God wants is that I find my fulfillment and my life from Him. And these other things became wonderful blessings as a result of that. God takes sin and this violation of this covenant relationship with us very seriously. He calls it in this context adultery. No one wants that in their marriage relationship. God doesn't want it in his. He said to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, I know your deeds. You work hard. I know how hard you work. You have persevered. You've endured hardship for my name. You've not grown weary. But I need to tell you this. You lost your first love. It's all now about activity, not about relationship. It's all about doing things, not about who I am. You've lost that love and that passion that you once had. Remember, he said, how far you have fallen and come back. So what do we do? How do we get back to what we once had? Similar to what would happen in a marriage if indeed there was some infidelity. How do you get back to what you once had? Because hopefully you'd want more than just to get back into the house. You'd want to restore what was lost, rebuild what you once had. So what do we do? James gives us some answers in verse 7 to 10. You submit yourself to God. You resist the devil. You come near to God, and He'll come near to you. You wash your hands, you purify your hearts, you grieve, you mourn. You change your laughter into mourning, your joy into gloom. You humble yourself before God, and He will lift you up. It begins with repentance. It continues with a lot of work. For God says, I I want you to know that when I came into this relationship with you, I gave it all. And I offered you absolutely everything. And I knew when you came to me, you wanted that as well. And you offered me your life. You came into this relationship wanting what I had to offer, and you know and knew that I had it all, and I could give it to you all. And you came that way. But somewhere along the way, a lot of things got in the way. Be it habits or hobbies, be it job or family or places of enjoyment, things I do or who I am <coughs> or what I've accomplished or where I live. And somehow I get a sense that you're trying to find satisfaction and joy and life and energy from all of those things. I'll never satisfy. In this relationship with you, in this relationship with me, it's an exclusive one. Not looking around for the next best thing. It's what I want from you and what I know you really want from me. And so I want you to come back. How do we get there? These seven things. And next Sunday morning we'll unpack them all because they're absolutely powerful to who we are in Christ. Let's pray.
Father, again, your word is really powerful. It divides us. It lets us see inside, as we've been saying all along. It reminds us of how we use our time, our energy, our tongue, our words, where we get life, where we get wisdom, where we get direction for life. In this, as we begin to explore it, I I trust that throughout this week we begin to examine our relationship with you, the one that we may have had at the beginning, the one that we still have now. Where all of these other things that so many around us find satisfaction in and life from, that we find it in you. All these other things are wonderful. But we find our satisfaction, our fulfillment, our joy in you. So God, as we begin to explore that in these days together, I trust that you'll help us to really examine our relationship with you. As we begin to compare it with our marriage this week, help us to look at it with maybe a different set of eyes as to what it really looks like and what ours is and what you want. So God, I just ask that in the name of Jesus that you will continue to keep us aware of how we live this life that you've called us to, who we are as the bride of Christ, the thing that brings you the most joy, the thing that you will take to heaven with you, that joy of being around that Mary's Supper of the Lamb where the bride and the groom are united for all time. And the joy that that, that brings to the Father when he knows someday there'll be that uniting of the two. As the bride of Christ, Father, we want to keep ourselves pure and holy. We want to be what you expect us to be. We want to be what you'll be pleased with as we enter that place with you someday. So as we walk our walk now, help us to understand what that means day by day as we begin to explore it within the context of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray.